for uh, obviously all the support of this. Obviously, this uh, the conference was a is a ministry of this church, and I just appreciate y'all rallying around it. You you attended it, you tried to attend it, you spoke at it, you served at it, you prayed for it, so you gave towards it. All those things. So so I, I really do want to thank you guys for that. You know, it was funny. I. I pranced in there on, on opening night, and I thought I was going to talk about satanic warfare and then not be on the receiving end of it, and that was, a, that was an oversight, and the, and, the, and the hotel made sure of that. Um, they, they, gave us, they definitely gave us a run for our money in the midst of that, but, but, it, but it's all good. You know, it was, it was fun. The Lord was glorified, and I guess I I guess I should have anticipated that. Next year, I'm going to leave Satan out of it, and I'm just going to talk about marriage. But, <laughs> but, but anyway, it was it was it was good. It was it was fun. You know, this is a this is a really busy time of year. It's easy to get distracted by a lot of things, and so as we begin, let's 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 still our hearts before the Lord and, and pray as we begin. Father, we. We love you and, and we come before you and, and everything that's going on and all of the busyness that's around this time of year, it's, it's uh, God, we, it's really supposed to be all about you. And, uh, and, and I pray that, that that's what it would be. I pray, God, as we, as we come in here right now, we just settle our hearts uh, from the, uh, in the midst of, of busy times and that you would just uh, settle our hearts but also soften them. Soften them to the things and the truths that we're going to hear this morning. And I pray, God, that you would change lives, and I pray that you would save lives if there's anybody here who's never called upon your name to save them. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so for, for anybody that doesn't know, we, we're in the middle of a, of a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Thessalonians. This, this church has, uh, has nothing against topical messages as long as they're exegetical in nature, meaning the preacher is simply exposing the truth of the Word of God from the text, as opposed to topical messages that are eisegetical in nature, meaning they, the meaning that the, the preacher is imposing his opinion or his preconceived ideas onto the text. But, but we're in the middle of, of a verse-by-verse study, and we enjoy being able to, to do that because... God wrote his word verse by verse and line upon line and precept upon precept. And so we like to preach it that way and, and we like to approach it that way when we can. And man, it's amazing what you discover when you approach it that way. The, the way everything in the Bible is connected in the, in the depth and the richness of the Bible, it's, it's nothing short of supernatural when you dive in. And, and, and as we begin this morning, I, I want to remind us that, that two weeks ago, we, we studied verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3, where we were learning some things about prayer, and, and we were learning some things about Paul, Silas, and Timothy's reliance upon the Lord to direct their paths. And, and as we were gleaning some of those devotional truths to apply to our lives from those verses, what's actually been happening in the midst of those verses is that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they have begun a prayer to the Lord. And one of the things we spent some time looking at specifically was the eternal nature of these prayers two weeks ago. But there are some other things that we learn as well 
as the prayer continues. And, and one of those things is how love is patterned. That's the first blank on your study sheet. How love is patterned. There's a pattern or there's, there's a sequence to how this thing, this thing of love shakes out. And in order to see the pattern, we need to start with who the love came from. Who the love came from, who it came from. That's letter A, who it came from. This, this prayer is going on in these verses beginning in verse 11. And in verse 11, which we spent the majority of our time last time here, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. And, and the prayer continues, and we, and we see a pattern that God lays out for us in verse 12. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. And I want you guys to notice the, the way that God inspired Paul, Silas, and Timothy to word this verse. They say, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. Now, now this verse still makes biblical and logical sense without throwing in the, and the Lord make you, doesn't it? it he could just say, increase and abound in love one toward another, and we would have gotten the drift. God desires for us to do that. God's desire for us to do that is still expressed without adding the, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another. And so what I want to do is I want to make sure that, that to, to emphasize who the love that we've been called to have, who it comes from. Listen, this isn't something that we just muster up. This isn't where we, we grit our teeth and we contort our face and we close our eyes and then poof, love comes out. Now, if we grit our teeth, contort our face and close our eyes, poof, something might come out, but it's not going to be love. No, no that, that's, not, that's not how it works. Love comes from the Lord. The who is God. That, that's your blank there. The who is God. It comes from God. He's the one who gives us the ability to love the way that we've been called to love. The love, it, it comes from him. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Our love is of God. That, that's who it comes from. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love. The, the spirit of love comes from God. God gives it. In fact, according to Galatians 5, it's a, it's a fruit of the Spirit of God in our lives. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So, so love comes from the Spirit of God that took up residence on the inside of us the day that we got saved. But the works of the flesh, which we all had our experiences with prior to salvation, which are still warring with the Spirit even after salvation, the works of the flesh are, are listed just a few verses earlier in this same chapter in Galatians 5.19, which says, 
Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, and here it is, hatred. Hatred is a work of the flesh, and it is the opposite of love, which is a fruit of the Spirit. You see, without the Spirit of God inside of us, which if you've never called upon the name of the Lord Jesus to save you, again, you don't have that Spirit on the inside of you. And without the Spirit of God on the inside of us, hatred comes very naturally because the flesh is our master and there's no one else there to call the shots. The flesh says jump, and we, we, we don't ask how, how high. We jump and we ask how high while we're in the air. That, that's how it works. Now, the flesh is still there even if you're saved, but, but now you've got the Spirit too. It, you, but, but if you aren't saved, you don't have access to the power of the Spirit. Sure, you, you can have some good characteristics in your life and be considered a nice or a, a good person, but you don't have access to the supernatural power in your life that only comes from the Spirit of God that empowers and enables believers to behave in ways and have characteristics in our lives that can't be explained. And these works of the flesh that, that come so natural to us, they're in direct opposition to the fruit of the Spirit. And again, as we see here, one of the works of the flesh in verse 20 is the opposite of love. Again, it's hatred. And that is a natural and a fleshly emotion to feel. Someone does you wrong. Someone treats you bad. When we're walking in the flesh, we can find hatred in our hearts real quick. But when we're walking in the spirit, we have a supernatural ability to overcome the things that so, so, come so naturally to our flesh. That's why in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, the Lord make you to increase and abound in love. Because the Thessalonians sure weren't going to muster up the kind of love that God has called us to on their own. They're incapable of doing it on their own. And so are we. In fact, the best thing that we can do to love the way that we've been called to love isn't to try harder to see if we can muster it up. The best thing we can do is die. Romans 6.11 explains that concept like this. Would you listen closely to it? Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, that sin that's trapped in our flesh, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lusts thereof. Neither yield ye your members, the, the members of your physical body, as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Listen, we have to die to our sinful flesh and yield ourselves to God. And what happens as we do that is we'll be instruments of righteousness and God's love comes out. There's nothing good in us. The only thing we do have going for us, though, 
is the Spirit of God that took up residence on the inside of us. So, so we die so that the Spirit of God can live through us just like He died so we can live. In a similar way, we die so that He can live. And as the Spirit of God lives through us, that's who that love comes from. The source is a who, and the who isn't us. The who is the Lord Jesus Christ. A few verses earlier in this chapter, our, our sinful flesh is called the, the old man. And, and, and we also see this in Colossians 3, 9, and 10, when Paul says, he, he says, put off the old man and put on the new man. It, it's, about, it's about putting off and it's about putting on. Put off the old man and put on the new man. It's about dying and it's about living die to our flesh live to the spirit and that's how it is that 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 as first thessalonians three twelve says that's how the lord makes us to increase and abound in love and this this love that, that came from the lord that paul silas and timothy were referring to it it wasn't just that they were to love but that they were to increase and abound in love they were to increase and abound in the love that they received from the Lord. You see, the Thessalonians actually already had love. Do you remember how we've already seen that in 1 Thessalonians 1.3? It referred to the Thessalonians' labor of love. The Thessalonians' lives, they were actually already characterized by love according to this verse. But love was so important that as Paul, Silas, and Timothy, as they, as they pray, they express their desire in verse 12 of chapter 3 that we've been studying this morning. They, they express their desire for the church of the Thessalonians to increase and abound in the love that comes from the Lord. In other words, the church of the Thessalonians was already characterized by having a labor of love, but as Paul, Silas, and Timothy established them and, and perfected them in the faith, they wanted to see him continue to increase and abound in that love. And they, and they wanted him to, to keep growing in that love and, and keep increasing in that love. They, and for there to be more and, and more, and again, for them to realize who that love comes from and, and who the source of that love is, which is God. That's the first part of the pattern of love that I want to make sure that we see. The pattern starts with God. And the next part of the pattern of love that I want us to see is who the love went toward. Letter B, who it went toward. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, it, it says, Again, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love, one toward another, and toward all men. <laughs> Listen, there was, there was no exception and, and there was no distinction. The prayer and desire of Paul, Silas, and Timothy was that the church of the Thessalonians' love would go to everyone. He, he says, increase and abound in love towards one another inside the body of Christ, inside the church, and also increase and abound in love toward one another outside of the body of Christ. Toward all men, it says. Everyone is your blank. Listen, 
we're not only to love those that are inside this church, we're to love those that are outside of this church. Now, now let me ask you to just think for a second about which one of those things is harder. Loving those inside the church or loving those outside of the church. And it's up for debate, but it's interesting because oftentimes it's easier to love those outside of the church than it is to love those inside of the church because those outside of the church we tend to love from a distance, don't we? You know, but inside of the church, it's a little more up close and personal. And though our shortcomings should certainly be less inside the church than outside of the church, the shortcomings that exist inside of the church are magnified because we see them up close. But regardless, y'all, we're called to love everyone inside and out, even the ones with glaring flaws who have done us wrong. Galatians 5.14, it says, For all the law is fulfilled in one word even in this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as much as you possibly can. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And this thing of loving our neighbor, man, it's nothing It's nothing new. Loving others is nothing new. God commanded it from the inception of the law. But, but what I love about this verse in 1 Thessalonians 3 is God is teaching us that he doesn't just want us to stay stagnant with our love towards others. He, he certainly doesn't want it, it diminishing, but, but he doesn't even want our love towards others staying in the same place. What God is showing us is that we're to always be increasing love towards all people at all times. This is a category we're never to stop growing in. Even if we believe that love is characteristic of our lives, we can't allow ourselves to get complacent and stagnant and just stay put where we are because God's teaching us if love is characteristic of your life, now that you're there, now that you love others, Keep moving forward. Keep increasing it. Keep abounding. Keep growing in that love. Whatever you do, don't stop now. That's great that some of us actually genuinely love people. But don't get content staying there. Keep growing and abounding and increasing in love. And if you, if you don't love the way you should, like we talked about earlier, you, you've got to die to self and allow the Lord to live through you so that fruit of the Spirit, uh, that is love, can be manifested in your life. But here's another idea. What if, we, what, what if you did what the apostles did in Luke 17.5? Do you remember what they did in Luke 17.5? Jesus is talking to the apostles, and in the midst of Jesus talking to them about forgiving others, Verse 5 says, And the apostles said unto the Lord, Increase our faith. The apostles recognized their need for, for more faith. And they wanted it, but they knew they couldn't get what they want and what they needed and what they'd been called to. They knew they couldn't do that on their own. And so they go straight to the source and they asked him for it. What if we were just crazy enough to do the same thing with love? What if we said, Lord, would you increase my love? I know I'm falling short. Would you, would you increase it? 
I'm under conviction that I'm falling so short in this category. Would you increase in abundance the love that I have in my heart for people? So God shows us who, 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 love that it, who the love that increases and abounds comes from, which of course is God and not us. Then he shows us who it went towards, which is everyone. And then next, he shows us how it was understood. He shows us, let her see, how it was understood in this pattern. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and in verse 12, here's what he says, And the Lord make you to increase and abound and love one toward another and toward all men, here it is, even as we do toward you. The way they were to love was understood by example. It was understood by their example, that's your next blank, it was understood by the example of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. The, the book of 1 Thessalonians, it talks about discipleship throughout much of this book. And in this verse, is, this verse is no different. Paul, Silas, and Timothy were the example of this love. They, they were discipling the Thessalonians, and, and their walk with the Lord was such that they could essentially say, why don't you guys increase and abound in love and if you've got any questions as to what that looks like just do what we do toward you anybody in here discipling somebody ready to say that man i am just struggling with with loving people the way i should hey no worries brother just do exactly what i've been doing towards you and you'll have it down Listen, what if we increased and abounded in love to the point that we could say that with a straight face? Wouldn't that be something? And I believe this is a church that loves. But like most, it's a church that has some increasing and abounding in love to do to be able to say that, self-included. It's one thing to love. It's another thing to increase and abound in love to the point where you can say, just do it the way I do it. This, is not, this isn't that hard. Just watch me and do what I do. And that, but that's where God wants all of us to get to in our lives. Do you understand that? And, and then next, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they give us some reasons why they desired for the church of the Thessalonians to increase and abound in love. And, and it's because there's something that love is accomplishing. There's, there's something that love is accomplishing. Number two, what love is accomplishing The last verse of, of chapter 3, it, it, it teaches us that, that there's something that's happening as the Thessalonians are increasing and as they're abounding in love. There's something that, that's happening. Read, start in verse 12 again with me. The Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you. And here's what that accomplishes. To the end... He may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Listen, here's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying to the church of the Thessalonians, which as we've seen is a book written to prepare us for the coming of of the Lord. The the coming of the Lord comes up near the end of every chapter of this book, and in this particular case, this is a reference to the second coming, which is when the Lord comes back with all his saints. Listen, y'all, that's the, the, this reality that we're currently living in 
is going to be completely turned upside down one day. Do you believe that? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return with all his saints and he's going to execute judgment in some unimaginable and unbelievable ways. Jude 14 and 15 says, And Enoch also, the, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied of these things, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all of their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You see, this is the day that, that the entire Bible has been pointing to. This is the day that all of God's prophets have been prophesying about. This doctrine is brought up more than any other doctrine in the Bible. This is the day that is the theme of the Bible. The day that the Lord returns and gets the glory that's due His name. We're in the middle of a season of the year where we're celebrating the first coming of Christ. But we need to understand something. When He comes back the second time, it's going to be a lot different than when He came the first time. Because you see, when he came the first time, he came as the king of kings and the lord of lords and the king, and a king wears a crown. And yet in his first coming, the only crown he ever wore was the crown of thorns, Matthew 27, 29 says. They, they mockingly jammed that on his head. But when he comes the second time, Revelation 19, 12 says he will be wearing a royal crown. In fact, he will wear many crowns. A king has a scepter, and a scepter represents his, his power and, and his authority and his, his majesty. And in his first coming, the only scepter our Lord ever held was a reed, a, a tiny little stick that Matthew 27, 29, and 30 says that they mockingly put in his hand. But buddy, when he comes the second time, Revelation 19, 15 says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. A king has a robe, and when he came the first time, the only robe he ever wore was the scarlet robe that Matthew 27, 28 says they mockingly placed on his back. After, of course, they whipped it to the point that it was nothing but raw, bleeding flesh, and the king of kings stood wearing a robe drenched in his own blood. But Revelation 19, 13 says that when he comes the second time, he'll be wearing another robe, and this one will also be stained with blood, but Isaiah 63, verse 1 through 3, lets us know that it won't be his blood this time. It will be the blood of his enemies. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy are saying that, that this day is approaching and that we should increase and abound in love so that when that day comes, our hearts are established and our hearts are unblameable in holiness. That's how Jesus should find us, established with a blameless heart, living holy lives. The, the church of the Thessalonians, increasing in love was what, was, was what would establish their hearts. This, this thing of being established, man, it, it keeps coming up in this book. You can't hardly ignore it. This is the fourth time that establishing them or establishing them has come up. And so it's important that they were established, that they were, they were strong. Because if you aren't strong and you aren't stable and you aren't established, 
when the winds of persecution come from the world, you're going to get tossed around. When the winds of persecution or mistreatment come from inside this church, which they will no matter where you are, you get tossed around. When the trials of life inevitably come, you get tossed around unless you're established. And that love establishes us, according to, to verse 13, in blamelessness. Verse Thessalonians 3, 13, it says to establish your hearts unblameable in 1 Thessalonians 3, 13. Paul said, do you have that slide? There it is. Unblameable. It will establish your hearts unblameable. Paul Silas and Timothy's prayer for the church of the Thessalonians and, and God's desire for each of us in this church is that we'll be unblameable, that, that we'll be blameless, that our, that our lives will be such as the, as the testimony of Titus chapter 2 and verse 7, that this will be the testimony of our lives. In all things, showing thyself a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. We should be so blameless that even those that oppose everything that we stand for and those that are against us and those that quite frankly can't stand us can't actually come up with bad things to say about us. They want to so bad, but they're put to shame because no matter how hard they try, they can't come up with anything true to say. Well, it doesn't always stop them, but they can't come up with anything true to say. And, and how it works is, that's the result of living a holy life. That's why Paul, Silas, and Timothy say, unblameable in holiness. When we're living holy lives, we automatically live blameless lives. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says it this way, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, those promises from the previous chapter are that God will be our Father and we'll be His sons and daughters. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. You know how you perfect holiness? You clean out the filthiness. If something just popped in your mind that you're involved in and you're wondering if it classifies as filthiness, your conscience just told on you. I can guarantee you it is. It's filthiness. If you have to ask, then it's yes. Get rid of it. Get rid of that trash. Get rid of that filthiness. Filthy thoughts, filthy conversations, filthy actions. In 2 Chronicles chapter 29, verses 4 and 5, Hezekiah, he's, he's, cleaning, he's cleansing and cleaning the temple. And, and here's what happens in verse 4. And he brought the pre, in the priests and the Levites and gathered them together into the east street and said unto them, Hear me, ye Levites, sanctify now yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord God of your fathers and carry forth the filthiness out of the holy place. Listen, God's desire is that we clean out the filthiness from the place where it's supposed to be holy. 
And in this case, in 2 Chronicles, it's the house of the Lord, or it's the, it's the temple that needed that filthiness cleansed out because it's supposed to be holy. But, but now, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, now we are the temple of God, which, which God also requires to be holy. In 1 Corinthians 3, 16, it says, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy. Which temple ye are? <laughs> the word destroy here is not, a reference to, is not a reference to casting a believer in hell, but quite literally our bodies being physically destroyed by what we're putting into it and what we're doing with it. But, but God's teaching us that now, that now we're God's temple because the Holy Spirit dwells on the inside of us. And at, just as God's temple, just like the temple in the Old Testament, because that's where the presence of the Lord is now, we're to be holy. And we're to get out any of the filthiness and anything that would defile God's holy temple. God says, get all the garbage out because you need to be prepared for the Lord's coming because he's coming back. And when he does, we're to be found unblameable in holiness. And that's what increasing and abounding in love accomplishes. In, in verse, verse 12 of chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they express their desire through prayer that the church of the Thessalonians would increase and abound in love towards all mankind. And then verse 13 says, to the end or for the purpose of establishing their hearts unblameable in holiness when Jesus comes back with all his saints. It, what, what that increasing and abounding in love accomplishes is that when Jesus comes back, we'll be found blameless and we'll be found holy. So that's what increasing and abounding in love accomplishes. But, but why is that? Why is it that love accomplishes that? Why is love successful in doing that? Why is love successful? And, and there are more reasons than we will look at this morning, but I do want to at least give you a taste of why love is successful at establishing us in blamelessness and holiness at the Lord's return. Now, now remember earlier, we, we, we talked about this thing of increasing and abounding love. We, we learned that Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they, they modeled that and they exemplified that. They, they exemplified the, the love that they were desiring that the church of the Thessalonians would grow into. They modeled that. They were the example of that. Verse 12 of, of chapter 3, it essentially says, increase and abound in love just like we do towards you. And what increasing, abounding, and love accomplished was that they'd be unblameable and holy. And it just so happens that the Bible records Paul, Silas, and Timothy as having these same characteristics of being unblameable and holy previously in this same book. 1 Thessalonians 2.10, do you remember when we studied this one? Ye are witnesses and God also how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you. If that's what increasing and abounding in love accomplishes, then it makes sense that that's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy were modeling, that kind of love, and it accomplished that 
in their lives and that that's what characterized their lives, that they were unblameable and holy. And chapter, 10, or chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us exactly that. But again, why does love accomplish this? And as we're looking at why love accomplishes these things, we'll look at why, and then we'll look at how Paul, Silas, and Timothy are on record as doing those exact things. The, the, so first, the reason why that I want us to see is because love teaches people the truth. Letter A, it teaches people the truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, it says, but, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. You see, love and truth, they come together because as we're speaking the truth of the word of God to people, we're to do it in love. We speak the truth in love, according to this verse, so that others will grow. That, that love gives others the ears to hear it so that when they receive the truth, they grow. We can speak the truth all day long, but do it without love and see how far we get. Amen. That love teaches the truth. And check this out. That's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy modeled to the church of the Thessalonians, which is why their lives were characterized by being blameless and being holy. Love teaches the truth. And here's what 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Listen, they were affectionately desirous of them. The Thessalonians were dear unto Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and so they gave them the truth of the gospel, it says, and they did it in love. That's why love is successful at causing us to be blameless and holy, because love teaches people the truth. Another reason why love is successful at establishing us as, as blameless and holy when the Lord returns is because, letter B, it, it tells them not what they want to hear, but need to know. It tells them not what they want to hear, but what they but need to know in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, Paul and, and Timothy reference the fact that, that they had what they refer to as, as love unfeigned. They, that love unfeigned is a way to say they, they had sincere love. But here was the problem. Six chapters later in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 12 and verse 15, Here's what it says. It says, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Paul loved him, and, and, and so he spoke the truth to him in love, but sometimes even when you speak the truth in love, the more abundantly you love, the less you're loved. Because not everyone wants to hear the truth, even when it's packaged in love. Now, sometimes we're loved less because we're all truth and no love and, and people don't have ears to hear it. But other times, despite doing what we've been called to do, which is love people enough to tell them the truth and present that truth in love, sometimes people will love you less for that. It, it would have been easier to just let them live how they wanted to live. Leave them alone. Just let them be. 
But love tells others the truth that they need to know instead of what they want to hear. That's what love does. And that's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy modeled too. 1 Thessalonians 2.4 says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, and here it is, not as pleasing men, you're not always going to do that, but God. They, they didn't give them the truth of the gospel to please them. They knew they very well may not. Instead, they gave them what they needed to hear, regardless of whether it pleased them or regardless of whether they wanted to hear it. That's why love is successful at causing us to be blameless and holy, because it tells them not what they want to hear, but what they need to know. Another reason that love is successful at accomplishing, establishing people in blamelessness and holiness is because love ministers to the needs of others. Love ministers to the needs of others. Hebrews chapter 6 in verse 10. It says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed towards his name, and in, in, in what did that labor of love that was showed towards God's name look like? In that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. You see, love looks a whole lot like ministry. That's one of the ways that love expresses itself. Love expresses itself by ministering to the needs of others. God knew what that love would do. Love finds a need and it does what it takes to meet that need. Sometimes it's a physical need. Sometimes it's a spiritual need. But it's meeting needs. It's serving. It's listening. It's discipling. It's establishing people in the faith. It's encouraging. It's exhorting. It's comforting. It's charging others. And that's exactly what Paul, Silas, and Timothy exemplify to us. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 11, it says... As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. Listen, that's, that's ministry, ministering to the needs of others. It's not just for pastors, but for everyone that names the name of Jesus Christ. That's why love is successful at causing us to be blameless and to be holy because it ministers to the needs of others. And then the last reason that I want us to see that, that love is successful at causing us to be blameless and holy is love sets a good example that causes others to grow. It sets a good example that causes others to grow. Galatians 5.13, here's what it says. For brethren, ye've been called unto liberty... Only use not that liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love, serve one another. It, you see, we've been called to serve one another in love. And, and what that means, according to this verse, is even though we have liberty in Christ and have the freedom to do certain things, that we don't do them if we think it can cause somebody that we're with to stumble. It, no, we don't use our liberty for that. Because of love, what we do is we set an example for others to grow, not for others to stumble. Love causes you to do the things that you need to cause someone to grow, whatever it takes. If that means we need to stop doing something that we enjoy because it's causing someone to stumble, then 
then we don't think twice about that because of our love. You would do that for your physical children or physical brothers and sisters. Wouldn't, wouldn't we do that? Then why wouldn't we do that for our spiritual children and our spiritual brothers and sisters? You remember the example that, that Paul, Silas, and Timothy were to them, which caused them to grow? You remember that example that he lays out for us in 1 Thessalonians 1.6? Here's what he says, And ye became followers of us, there's that example that they were, they followed them, and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost. And here's what shows how much the Thessalonians grew as a result of Paul, Silas, and Timothy's example. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad. So that we need not to speak anything. They grew so much that they became the examples to others. Verse 9, for they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's why love is successful at causing us to be blameless and holy because it sets an example that causes others to grow. Listen, 35 times in the New Testament we're commanded, love one another. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul's listing off all these virtues that, that, that believers in Christ, all these virtues that we're to have. And, and starting in verse 12, he says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of minds, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And would you listen to verse 14? And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. That's the one. Charity or, or love perfected. That thing is at the top of all of these virtues. Yeah, be merciful and, and be kind and be humble and meek and long-suffering and forbear one another, forgive one another. But I think what God wants to show us is We'll accomplish all of those things if we just have charity. We'll accomplish all those things. Loving the way that we should covers all our bases. That's what love does. Let me ask you something. Do you feel like you're where you should be when it comes to loving others in this church and loving others outside of this church? Maybe some of us have such a tough time with it because we've always tried to to muster it up on our own instead of getting it straight from the source, instead of getting it from the one who is love, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where that thing comes from. Maybe some of us have true love toward those in this church and outside of this church that's coming straight from the source. If that's you, praise the Lord, man. But now what God wants you to do is continue to increase and abound in that love that you already have. Keep progressing, keep increasing, keep doing that, but do it more. And if you say, that's me, I, I love, and I've been increasing more and more, if that's you, then man, that, that is wonderful. If that's the case, then according to the verses we've studied this morning, then what should be true of you is, 
is your life should be characterized by being established in blamelessness and holiness. That's what it should look like. If you're not established in blamelessness and holiness, then you're not increasing and abounding in love. Because increasing and abounding in love, it causes us to be established in blamelessness and holiness. If that's not you, is it, is it at least the desire of your heart? You say, man, I'm falling short of what you're talking about this morning. Is it at least the desire of your heart, if that's not you? Is, it, is there a desire in your heart to be found unblameable and holy as a result of increasing and abounding in love when the Lord returns? Is that where you desire your life to be when the Lord shows back up here? If the Lord came back right now, are you cool with where you're at? Are you comfortable? Are you content with that? If you're not, would you express that before God this morning, like we looked at earlier? Would you, would you ask him for it? Ask him for it in your pew. Ask him for it as we sing. Ask him for it at the altar. Ask him for it wherever you want. Just ask him for it. Father, we, we love you, and, and we, we thank you for your word, and we, we thank you for the way that you love us. And now you've asked us to do the same to others, and I pray, God, that that would be characteristic of our lives and that we would just always be constantly increasing and abounding in love and that, and that others would, would see that light. We would be blameless. We would be holy. And we would walk in that, God, and that when you show back up on this planet, that's what characterizes us. May that be our lives, and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.